The one overarching theme that we really tried to instill in every evangelist that we hired, that it was make developers successful, period. There was no question anymore about what the value was <laughs> of evangelism. It was just a matter of like, what are the lead times gonna be? If we can't get 10 signups on a business day, what are we even doing here? One of the things we quickly discovered was that you couldn't actually replicate the Twilio model. You can maybe replicate the philosophies, but you can't replicate the, the tactics. Hi, I'm Yaron Sadka, Senior Sales Engineer at Runscope. You're listening to Road to Growth, a podcast about startup sales organizations brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. Road to Growth is a bi-weekly series that breaks down SaaS sales organizations one piece at a time. From the first person to kick off sales at a company, all the way down to the partnership and cohesion with the marketing and product teams, we'll take you through what it takes to build a powerful, fine-tuned sales organization. If you're interested in being a guest, have a topic for us to discuss, or a role you'd like us to dive into, send an email to roadtogrowth at heavybit.com. On this episode, I'm joined by John Sheehan, CEO of Runscope. We discuss the philosophy behind building a developer community and how every product requires a different set of tactics to yield positive results. All right, so uh, today we're joined by uh, John Sheehan of uh, Runscope. <laughs> Welcome, John. I only listen to your podcast. It's hard to actually look at you in the eyes while we do this instead of just hearing your voice. I mean, we can put you in another room next door. <laughs> yeah, we need like a divider or something. <laughs> yeah, so um, welcome. Thank you for being here. We normally start the show off with a two to three minute introduction of yourself and, and kind of your history in the tech world and, and how, what kind of brought you to starting Runscope and, and how things are going now. So, uh, All right, so uh, what brought me to tech? Well, I was... Uh, when I turned 13, I asked my parents to buy me a copy of Visual Basic 3 for my birthday. It was really, you know, the really hot item that year for 13 year olds. Uh, and so uh, the reason that was is because in my eighth grade class, we actually started programming basic on Apple 2GSs or 2G somethings. And uh, I knew basic and I thought, hey, now I can make programs if I get Visual Basic at home instead of on this really ancient Apple computer. And so uh, that's when I started programming, was right around 12 or 13. And I went from Visual Basic 3 through 4, 5, 6, and then the web started growing popular, and so I moved to, I was looking for a web language, and since I knew Basic, I went to VBScript, since that was basically the same, allegedly the same base language. Then I started writing web apps, and by the time I actually started writing web apps, I was sort of already on my second company. So then I started doing more and more web development uh, along with that. That company was called Wise Guys. And then after high school, I went to college for a semester and I got really bored with that. Kind of moved a little too slowly for my liking. So I decided to start another company because it was 2000 in the dot-com boom. And so I actually started a site that helped people try to find a new church when they moved to a new area. So finding a new church is actually sort of like Dating, and so the sites I decided actually created, I realized in hindsight was really a dating site. So like, I'm looking for <laughs> something with families, and that's close to here, and is a certain you know has certain belief systems and all that. It's almost identical to dating. Somebody should really make a Tinder for church locating. You know, swipe right, swipe left. Um, <laughs> that no, no one has ever uttered that sentence before. I guarantee you. And so I did that for a little while. I actually raised a little bit of money from some friends on that. Did that for a year. Ran out of money. Went horribly broke. As you imagine, uh, church is not a big market. Um, <laughs> Not a lot of money. 
available to vendors there. Uh, anyway, so I, I gave up on that, and then I started working at a couple different jobs. I was bouncing around doing like entry level help desk support and systems administration, and then sort of working my way up there. I ran the the uh, website for the Vikings for a while, for the Minnesota, or for the Mall of America, a bunch of other big institutions in Minnesota. Survived the Randy Moss trade server wise. Our servers were on fire, and <laughs> it stayed up thankfully. Uh, static files and caching. Uh, great strategies that I learned when Randy Moss got traded. Uh, and so on the side, I was running this softball league and I was doing a whole bunch of. Uh, this is the longest background, by the way. Yeah, sorry. You wanted detail. You know, he said go back as far as I wanted. Uh, I was running the softball site and it was really popular and uh, uh, it actually was helping grow the league. So we had full stats for every player in the league and like everyone was really getting into it and the league was getting popular just because of this website. And so I decided to start. A company offering that as a service to everybody else, and so uh, I decided to quit my jobs and do that again full time. Uh, sort of working as a, with a partnership with the Minnesota Twins to offer it to all the youth teams in Minnesota, but then being able to sell it on my own as a service. Uh, so I did that for a little while, and that was sort of my first software as a service thing, and the, the first company that actually made a little bit of money, even though it didn't really ever take off the way I hoped to know uh, or hoped to at the time. And so. I left that job and went to another agency who was also doing sports league websites and started building stuff with them, doing other more uh, websites for Minnesota companies. Then we started this thing called uh, ScreenFeed as a, a product trying to get out of consulting. And that was basically delivering high quality news content to digital signage. So if you're in San Francisco and you go in the Montgomery BART station and you see these big video boards that they have up now, and then they show you these full HD pictures, and on the bottom there's a headline over a semi translucent black background, that's screen feed. And so that's what I built the first version of that. It's now like over 100,000 screens in the US and it's still growing really fast. And at the same time, I came across Twilio basically while we were working on that. And so a lot of the stuff we were doing was starting to involve, you know, wanting to interact with the phone or for the sports stuff. There's a lot of like call-in hotlines for weather updates, that sort of stuff. And so I found Twilio and uh, immediately fell in love with it and started building Twilio apps just just for fun on the side. So I was running around, going to conferences, talking about it, and uh, writing blog posts, and doing screencasts, and doing basically all the things that a developer evangelist does. But just because I loved the service and the product, and it was fun telling other people about it. Twilio noticed this, and when I happened to run into uh, the founder uh, CEO Jeff and Daniel Morrell in Vegas one time, at, they were at a trade show. I was at a trade show. Danielle introduced me to Jeff and said, "Hey, this is John. I'd like to hire him as our first developer evangelist," which was news to me on multiple fronts. One, I didn't know they had it open, and two, I didn't know that she had noticed enough to want me for that job. A couple things happened, but a few days later, I basically got an offer letter uh, to start as uh, an evangelist for Twilio. So uh, at the time, there were about six or seven employees. Right around then, after the co-founders, and so uh, the first year was basically spent running around the country helping developers know about Twilio. It was basically you'd go to an event and everyone would be like, "What's Twilio?" And then, you know, we'd sort of tell them. But we were also there really to help help them just be successful at whatever they were doing. So we were like a global startup weekend partner. And what we went to do when we went to a startup weekend was not to actually tell them necessarily about Twilio, although that was sort of a benefit. It was actually to help them try to win startup weekend. Like that was our goal. We didn't care if you used Twilio or not. Uh, and that just really started to build up this brand amongst developers. And so that team just took off growing that I was on. And then it was about five or six people moved out to San Francisco, formally took over the team, built it up into a formal program. And then right around that time, an opening opened up for a developer experience product manager, which was essentially taking the last year and a half of, of talking to developers, watching them in that first five minutes of building their apps and trying to turn that into a better product. And so I leaped at that, that opportunity to get that job, switched to that. And then did that for about six months, and then took off from there and went to If This and That and helped build new channels on the platform there. Again, working with more APIs, 
And then from there, kind of got frustrated with all the API problems we were running to at Ift repeatedly that were really hampering our ability to create a quality end user experience. And so that's where the idea for RunScope sprung from. So now RunScope, chapter two. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a long and winding road, but it, it actually is really interesting for me every time somebody asks me that, which is rare, but um, to like trace the path how I got to where I got to. Like starting with basic on the Apple IIG, like you can trace like which technologies I ended up choosing all the way along the way, pretty much uh, till I got out and started our own company based on just my eighth grade class happening to have. That as as the programming language of choice for the computer club that we were in. So I find that that path interesting, but hopefully your listeners do too because it's long. <laughs> yeah. So you've had tech in your life this whole time. Really, what a lot of people who know you know you for your time at Twilio. Yep. Which was you know taking this company from a six seven person team, creating this whole new revolutionary position, kind of almost and. Using that to really catapult it to where it is today. Sure. When you first started, you had no idea what this kind of position was, or, right, or did right. you? Where, like, where? How much did you know about what a developer evangelist did? Um, you know, I I knew of developer evangelist because being involved in the Microsoft community, it's been a long-standing position within the Microsoft community. But most of the companies that had developer evangelists historically were like Sun, Microsoft. Uh, you know, giant, huge companies who could afford to pay people just to talk about their software, right, and and not build it themselves, right? It was sort of unknown to startups, I think, largely at that point. Like, I don't remember uh, going to an event and running into another developer evangelist. I think until the SendGrid team started hiring them, and then like by the time I was done, it was like there was an army of us <laughs> at every event, right? Now, now there's developer evangelist meetups at every event I go to. Like, yeah. the evangelists actually get together and meet up the, on their own. At every event, which is crazy to me because when <laughs> like no one was doing it at the startup stage when we were doing it, at least it didn't become apparent to us. So the model, you know, we struggled with a little bit with the title because evangelist, you know, obviously has connotations outside of software with, and it's basically like spread the word, right? Like right. let people know, and like that was actually never our intent was solely to go out and and just spread the word about. Uh, about Twilio, what we want to do is basically the way we looked at it was like we're going to become developers' best friends. Like we want every developer in the world to know who we are, and that we are a reliable, trusted source and a resource to them to help them be more successful. Whether that's you know shipping an app or getting funded or getting a raise, getting promoted. Like we wanted to be an asset uh, and a catalyst for people to achieve achieve those outcomes, because we knew that eventually communications was going to touch every application in the world. And so if we had all those relationships, when it came time. To to add communications to their apps, the path to Runscope or to sorry to Twilio was was very short, right? You mm-hmm. already knew somebody there, and then you know, that's where you would go. And I think that that generally worked out. And I think one of the reasons the Twilio developer community grew from like less than ten thousand when I started to now approaching a million, you know, like uh, let's see, about six years later, is that it's primarily first about the developer and not primarily first about Twilio, right? And and that was sort of like. The one overarching theme that we really tried to instill in every evangelist that we hired that it was like make developers successful, period. Not okay. make developers successful with Twilio, it was make developers successful. So you, you take the this idea that was huge in the enterprise space and you bring it to a startup, especially a, a team as small as Twilio was when you first joined. How how did the convincing aspect work to kind of be like, okay, we're gonna give John all this money and we're gonna send him all over the world? But we're not going to see returns for like a year or two, or at least we don't think we will. How do you sell that and and like 
actually get the buy-in from from those around you. Sure. So I think that really started with the founders being technical and them being essentially the first developer evangelist, right? Like they knew they were building something that was going to be where developers were primarily the audience and that traditional marketing was not necessarily going to work because they were developers first and they hated being marketed to in, in traditional forms, right? And so usually like if you're if you're wondering at an early stage in your startup like how to act, like generally like the the first thing you do is like how would I how would I buy this or how would I react to this or how would I want to be sold this product or interact with this product? And that's usually a pretty good gut check on like whether or not a cer- certain tactic is good or not, right? And so the Twilio founders basically said, like, we're developers, we don't want to be marketed to, we want to go self-serve sign up. We don't want to, if we don't ever talk want to talk to somebody, we don't have to. But we'd like to have people who are sort of on our side and are there to, to provide us resources in a in a non-threatening sales environment, basically, right? That are going to be there to help us when we want it. And so I think they saw that model early on. You, I guess you'd have to ask them how sure. why they thought it was like <laughs> like that was should have been their you know seventh hire or whatever it was or sixth or seventh hire, but I think it really came down to like they wanted to build a, a, an outreach program that they would like to have experienced when they were buying other tools and products. So apart from traveling and, and doing all that stuff, what what were your other job responsibilities that received tangible outcome that you could kind of get metrics on and, and look at and be like I I affected that sure. So the first year was really crazy because I was on the road about half the time going to events. The other half of my time was split between doing content for the blog, uh, running our developer contests, and support tickets. So I was doing about 50 tickets a day on top of all of the, everything else, which is a, a full-time job almost on its own. And then I was tasked with creating a, a blog post. Our team was tasked with creating blog posts every day of the year. Basically, our we wanted to get just the, just the evangelist, just the evangelist team. Yep. So that started when it was me and Danielle. Like we we're like we're gonna write a blog post every day of the year, right? So we're not gonna go to an event if we can't get like some output from that that's gonna result in a blog post. That was like the first benchmark. Was like, is this event worthy of writing a recap post for? And if it wasn't, then we weren't gonna go there probably, right? And so the tangible benefits early on were were not really present, I guess, in a way that. People like would traditionally look at. I think the thing we looked at is that the the registered developer number kept growing and the rate that it was growing kept increasing, right? And so it was hard, kind of hard to argue with that. And that was basically the sole number that we were largely measured on. But nobody ever told me we have to get to this number or we have this this quote or anything like that, right? But that was the one. Like as long as this rate is up and to the right and it's you know tilting up faster then this is successful right and so that was the biggest thing you know tickets was surely about you know quantity and quick responses eventually they hired thankfully a support team for that content was really like we would look at traffic uh, to see which posts were resonating with people uh, but then we also tried to find ways to just increase our throughput so we actually ended up coming up with a way where we could turn out a customer story in about 5 minutes wow <laughs> mostly getting the customer to write their own content without them realizing it uh, we actually had a backlog of about three. I think it got up to at one point three hundred. I may be overstating that. It was in the hundreds of posts where we had the content ready to go. If somebody wrote an intro and a conclusion to it, but we couldn't get it out fast <laughs> enough, right? Like, the, like there wasn't enough room on the blog. Yeah, and they all started to sound the same too. That was the other problem. But like, we got really good at like high velocity content, right? Yeah, and so. All of those things, though, just every time we wrote a blog post about somebody new, they'd go tell their friends. We'd get a bunch more signups, and so it just kind of snowballed on top of itself. 
it wasn't really until I think the like the there was a defining moment, sort of like a tangible result to evangelism, and it really comes down to like the group me story, which within Twilio was like probably the most infamous evangelist story as it exists. <laughs> so uh, Danielle and another Twilio employee uh, were out in New York for TechCrunch Tech Disrupt uh, Hackathon. And they were hanging around helping teams. And uh, the GroupMe team basically came up to them and said, Hey, we got this idea for a group messaging app. Can you help us build on Twilio? They sat down, they spent the first hour prototyping the app with them. And then you fast forward 18 months, they got bought by Skype for, for Microsoft for $75 million or whatever it was. And along the way, they were you know, consistently amongst the top Twilio customers. And they got there very quickly and it kept ramping and ramping and ramping. And uh, a lot of work was going into scaling just to you know support you know them and a couple other really high growth customers. But that was like you could trace the origin of that back to an evangelist was in the right place at the right time to help them be successful. They didn't even win that that hackathon by the way. They got second <laughs> behind something else, right? But after after that happened, there was no question anymore about what the value was <laughs> of yeah. evangelism. It was just a matter of like, what are the lead times going to be? Is it going to be eighteen months till we get the out, the outcomes with these customers? Like, how quickly are they going to ramp that sort of stuff? And they've had plenty of other uh, customers since that have have you know shortened that timeline and ramped even faster and gone to even crazier scales than GroupMe was doing. And they may not have been directly sourced by evangelism, but even if they saw a group me and thought, oh, we'll just use Twilio for our thing too, because of that story, you know, it all goes back to that again, having the right person at the right time. Right, right. And so, so you go through this, you see all the growth. You are now the CEO of your own company. Mm-hmm. At what point did you decide, all right, it's time? I don't have enough time to do this anymore. We should bring somebody sure. in to do this. So when we first started, the company it was basically me and Frank, and then we hired three other people, and none of them were on outreach or sales. Basically, it, it was all engineering and product, and that was for the pretty much the first year of the project. So the first year, I was still doing all of the blogging, all of the events, uh, all of the open source stuff. But one of the things we quickly discovered was that you couldn't actually replicate the Twilio model. In fact. When people ask me, like, "Hey, how do we do what Twilio did at my company?" I say, "It's impossible. You can't. The circumstances are not the same. You are not Twilio. Either your product's not as good, or the environment has changed in a way whereby, like, when you go to invent now, you're competing with sponsors like GE and Microsoft and Dell, and like at the time we were competing with nobody, right? And mm-hmm. so you can't actually replicate what Twilio did. You can maybe replicate the philosophies, but you can't replicate the the tactics. And so." So we very much had a similar revelation. It was like we're not, we don't have a million dollar event budget to spend traveling and sponsoring everything this year. We need to find something else. We need to find like another avenue to get access to developers to help them be successful that does not involve basically the event strategy that that we we sort of patented at Twilio in a way. And so about six months in, Jeff Lindsay, I think, was the first one who. Said basically, he was running request bin. So Jeff Lindsay created the term webhooks. He worked at Twilio with us. He built Local Tunnel, which eventually was sort of superseded by Ngrok. But a lot of these like early API tools that were sort of open, free community stuff. Request bin was having a lot of reliability problems, and he was kind of ready to move on to other other problems in his life. And so I said, well, why don't you just give us request bin? We'll take care of it. We'll keep it up. We'll put the resources in to make it stable, and uh, we'll give you a little something for that. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. But we promise we'll keep it free and open and no sign up and that sort of stuff. And so he said, "Okay, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Problem solved. Now I don't have to worry about this. Now it's your problem, right? Wash his hands of it." And so we we basically uh, took it over. We did a very very slight rebranding of it. We just basically polished up the design a little bit. Again, we didn't uh, meaningfully change the functionality at all. 
and we put our logo on it and uh, right away we started to see like an uptick in signups. So like people were coming through from that project and signing up directly because it helped them debug webhooks and now they associated that with RunScope and now they had, you know, something maybe other API problems that they wanted to solve. And then we started putting uh, we were starting to get into like do a little bit of experimentation around retargeting with our own audiences and we thought, well, what if we put the retargeting tag on our community sites? And then we started running ads against those, and they started converting like crazy as well. And so we just realized we had this like super highly targeted audience that was like had that same goodwill feeling towards us because we helped them solve a problem, and was willing to try like gave us the benefit of the doubt when it came to try RunScope. And the best part was we didn't have to fly anywhere to do that, and <laughs> it was very like not didn't take up that much time is basically what I was what I was getting at. So it was basically inexpensive or free. And so at that point we're like, okay, we got to go get more of these, right? <laughs> so like this is working, let's go get more. But our original like sign up traction, uh, we had definitely hit the like trough of despair after launch. We had such an exciting launch, we got a whole bunch of signups, and like we, you know, we're feeling good about things. We got our fir- first paid customer from our private beta testers like the day before we launched, and like so we're riding this high, and then you go two months later and. I think that July of 2013, we had a weekday where we signed up two people, right? It was like, (laughs) if we can't get 10 signups on a business day, what are we even doing here, right? And so, like, we're really starting to feel like the trough of despair that uh, most startups go through. And that's when the request bin thing happened. And then it just started taking off from there and never really slowed down, right? So, uh, we added Hurlit. We uh, took that over from Twilio because Twilio, again, it was having reliability issues. I had actually acquired it while I was at Twilio. Uh, from Leo, uh, Leah Culver and Chris Wanstroth, who had built it as part of a Rails Rumble, and I don't know. Either way, uh, it was going down. Twilio was like, "Great, thank you for taking this problem <laughs> off my hands." Right. Over time, we like either have, I think we're up to about a dozen now that we've either acquired and operate, sponsor costs for, so that the author doesn't have to you know pay for hosting fees or certificate fees, that sort of stuff. Some we just give sort of like a, a yearly stipend to as a sort of like a support of the project, and then. Uh, we've actually built some new ones ourselves too. So API Changelog was originally a RunScope community project, uh, Embed Curl, and a couple others. And so we tried to basically build up this portfolio of touch points with developers so we could get access to them. And the total audience across all these developer sites is hundreds of thousands of developers a month, right? It's like scale that we could never even have imagined reaching doing events at Twilio for a fraction of the cost. Uh, and they're very highly targeted and they convert at a great rate when they when they land on RunScope. And so it was basically the idea was. The same core philosophy: help developers be successful. How do we reach a lot of them, but do it in a way that is our own and unique? And that I guess that's that's sort of where that that ended up. So after about a year doing that all myself, going back to the question that I just remembered, it was when we first hired our first developer advocate, and so that was in April of 2014. So we'd basically been launched for like 13 months at that point. Okay. Uh, and then we built up over the the next year of that, you know, head of developer relations and then communications lead, which was sort of part of that group as well, working on reaching developers through content and stuff like that. So, are you still employing the new piece of content every day, even at RunScope, or is that has that been thrown out the window in in lieu of quality <laughs> content that comes out maybe once a week? Or yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we never really got to that level of velocity for content. But I also like the 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 use cases for Twilio, or for Twilio are are infinite, right? Like there's every kind of app that you can write for it, so there's infinite number of stories to tell on on what you can do with RunScope. It's it's sort of a single purpose, maybe <laughs> dual purpose tool for testing and monitoring, right? But within testing and monitoring, there's not like a huge variety of different cases that you're trying to necessarily uh, harp on. That's like okay, you can monitor a REST API, or you can monitor a SOAP API, and <laughs> 
you're sort of out of like interesting angles to go there, right? Occasionally customers come by and do interesting things and we, you know, can try to tell those stories when when it happens, but there wasn't like the uh the inspiration problem that we thought we had at Twilio, which was everyone would come to Twilio and say like this looks awesome. This is a great API, you know, I SMS, but I don't know how I should use this or why I should use this in my app. And so one of our big motivations was to give people ideas for how they should be using it so that the next time a project started to say, oh hey, you know, I remember, you know, this other group messaging app was using Twilio. I want to do that. Or notification app or even like marketing teams would be like, you know, overhear conversations about wanting to replace the call in like the toll-free number for the company. And uh, uh, there's a restaurant chain based in the Twin Cities, pure coincidence, that was basically like the marketing intern was like, oh, I could I could write you a new call-in toll-free number phone <laughs> menu in like an hour. And we can have it customized by all of our customer data based on what phone number they call in and all this stuff. And they did. And that ended up replacing the whole company's big, you know, toll-free dial-in number. That was because, you know, he had been subjected, <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word, exposed to like these types of ideas from other customers and had been following along and then was able to apply that back to his job when, when it came time. And so that model does not translate to RunScope at all, right? It tends to be a much more technical question or technical uh, thing that people want to understand when they're using RunScope. How do I deal with this specific instance? You know, how do I handle my OAuth APIs? Stuff like that, instead of uh, inspiring the use case in the first place. Yeah. So, so you've been able to kind of take that community piece or the value of community for, that you learned at Twilio, kind of repurpose it into how the users of RunScope would interact with that product and bring out this whole new suite of, of ideas around these community projects and, I guess, tools that they can use that aren't necessarily being charged for. Sure, right, yep. Usually what people, again, when they say, like, how do I replicate what Twilio did, I always say, like, go your own way, like, you've got a different model here. And, like, thankfully we didn't, Get really, really stuck on trying to replicate the Twilio playbook again, right? Mm-hmm. And so, being really, really, really conscious to like what those cues are from your community is going to lead you in the right direction much better than listening to anything that anyone from Twilio from 2010 <laughs> to 2015 <laughs> said about working there, what they did that worked. You just got to know your community, and if you're not, first of all, part of your own community, you better find somebody to hire very quickly who is, and then you know trust them to make the decisions based on what do you want first, right? So was the the person you hired the same as you in the sense that they were just constantly talking about Runscope, or was it more of just a a known connection that was just kind of apparent? Yeah. So the the first person we hired to do developer outreach, the the task was actually really not explicitly to talk about Runscope, right? So we considered that person a domain expert. We wanted them to write authoritatively about things that they knew that were related to what we do, but they didn't have to be explicitly about about the product itself. And uh, well, again, well, going back to, we wanted people to just see us as a resource to them to help them be better at their jobs or uh, whatever else. And so. I, I think the the thing that in in hindsight didn't work out is that the pro because of that sort of that difference I was talking about about inspiring use cases versus like how you use RunScope versus how you use Twilio like that was one case where we absolutely tried applying the old old playbook to the new yeah. model and it didn't work particularly well right we got a lot of good content out of that a lot of good resources things I'm really proud of but ultimately like that was not the right model for us right and so we had to sort of shift from that one of the things that we were finding was that for RunScope a lot of traditional SaaS marketing tactics actually work a lot better than developer outreach tactics. Now, our goal is to have both working really, really well, and because when they both are working well, they work, they sort of build on top of each other. But we've been really trying to ramp up the amount of traditional 
when I say traditional, I talk about like the SaaS era since 2005, maybe traditional marketing tactics about sourcing leads that are decision makers, not necessarily solely implementers, which has been the developer tool SaaS model, uh, making sure they're equipped to make the buying decision, making sure they understand what the implications are for the broader organization if they bring it to more people. And then ultimately helping them with their key objectives because the developers' key objectives of shipping a reliable uh, API do not always necessarily t- directly correlate to the business value of having reliable APIs. So we want to relay both of them. What is the technical value? What is the business value? And so we've been definitely doing more more in the traditional marketing uh, sense uh, more recently uh, as we've sort of learned that that, that can uh, pay off uh, a little bit better than maybe a, a, a Twilio model evangelist. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, it seems like what I'm hearing, and and from my experience as well, is when you're young, you want to build that mindshare. You want to make sure that people know about you and the people that are going to be using you, not the people that are going to be necessarily signing the checks, but the people that on a day to day basis will be on the Redscope website building their tests and things of that nature. And as you grow and they start finding either new jobs or what have you, they can then use that tool relay to the actual. Business decision maker, hey, this is something we want to use, and kind of get growth from the bottom up instead of kind of that top-down growth model where it's just like we bought this now use it. Right, right. Yeah, and and I've seen that work very successfully as well for a lot of B two B SaaS companies in in kind of acquiring that that mindset. Though they all do it very differently from a marketing perspective in terms of how they build community and the different tools they use. So definitely a lot of good parallels drawn from that. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate sure. it. Sure. Uh, and and best of luck to you uh, with Runscope. Well, thanks a lot. That's all we have time for today. Questions? Feedback? Contact me at roadtogrowth at heavybit.com. Thanks again to Heavybit for sponsoring our program. To learn more about Heavybit's nine-month program for developer-facing startups, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, make sure to check out their library. It's packed with great educational talks from developer company founders and industry leaders. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great week.